A group of friends were together in high school, and we were all out at a Mexican restaurant. And some of our group of friends had mentioned it to some of their friends, and some of their friends had mentioned it to some of their friends, and some of their friends had mentioned it to some of their friends. And before you know it, we took up an entire wing of the restaurant. And the food was great. Everything went fine. Paid the check. And then people just sat around. And they started to get bored. And that's always where the trouble starts with students. When they get bored. Keep them busy. So two of the guys who were there, not with our immediate group of friends, but who were friends of friends of friends, who were there, who we went to school with, decided they were going to turn the restaurant into a wrestling arena. And they locked up. And out of the corner of my eye, I could still see it, where one of them whipped the other one in the air, and the corner of his foot caught the corner of the table, and the drinks were spilled, and the salsa was knocked down and started pouring out onto the floor like lava. And everybody at our table just kind of looked up at each other and said, it's time to go. We're going to head out. Now, for those of you who, who may be students or assembling with large groups of people, when something goes wrong, that's the time to get out. The time when you get in trouble is when you hang around and decide, I just want to see what happens then. Because then the police show up and they don't start, they don't worry about all that. Just get out as soon as the trouble happens. Just tip from Uncle Brian. But just, just so you know, as soon as the trouble happens, it's time to go. It's time to go. And so we left. We got out of there before anything else could happen. Tonight, today we're going to talk about a dinner that also got out of control. A little bit worse. So if you have your phones or your tablets, you can follow along with us in the Bible app. We're going to be in the Old Testament book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 5. But before we get started there, I want to catch you up on what's going on in the context of what we're going to be seeing today. Israel's been in captivity for 70 years. They've been in captivity for 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar was the great king of Babylon, and he's now died. And Daniel doesn't record anything for us after the death of Nebuchadnezzar and before the start of Daniel chapter 5. It's a dark period in Daniel's book. So we go to the historical account. And what we see is Nebuchadnezzar had a son who ruled for two years upon Nebuchadnezzar's death. And then that son who ruled for two years was killed by his brother-in-law who ruled for four years. And then he died. And his son, who was very young, took over at his death. And his reign lasted less than a year before he was assassinated. And then one of the assassins became king. And as one of the assassins was king, he then married either one of Nebuchadnezzar's widows or one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. We're not really sure which it was, but it was either one of Nebuchadnezzar's widows or one of his daughters. And then they had a son, the, the new king, and Nebuchadnezzar's widow or, or daughter had a son named Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar ruled the empire in Babylon while well, the other king ruled the rest of the kingdom from Arabia. And you think our politics are a mess. That's the context 
where we jump into Daniel 5, where we read these words in Daniel 5.1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, there's more than meets the eye here. There's more, than, there's more than meets the eye. Because while this feast is going on, the Medes and the Persians have surrounded the city. They have surrounded the city of Babylon. They're already attacking all the other strongholds in the kingdom. The Medes and the Persians are all around the city gates. And this isn't just dinner. It's not like King Belshazzar and all the royals and all their entourages are seated nicely at a table eating a fine steak dinner on the finest china where you're working your way from the outside in on the utensils and everybody's prim and proper and having a great dinner party. That's not what's going on. This is more than dinner. This is a drunken orgy. That's what's happening in this hall. It is a drunken orgy. There is food. There is alcohol that is freely flowing. There, there is sex everywhere you turn. What's it tell us? It tells us it's nothing new. It's nothing new. The question that this causes most of us to ask, because most of us aren't going to a drunken orgy tonight, but the question that this causes most of us to ask is, how are we coping with the crazy? How are we coping with the crazy? So King Belshazzar, he knew the rest of the kingdom was already under attack. So whether he was resolved to the fact that Babylon was going to be attacked and he was going to be overthrown, or whether he had a false sense of confidence because it really was a fantastic city in which he resided. And so maybe he had confidence in the vast architecture and in all the defenses around him. And so he just he thought, I'll be all right. But whether it was just that that air of, in, of inevitability or whether it was an air of I'm untouchable. It was still incredibly chaotic and crazy. And the question we have to ask is, how are we handling the crazy? Because our world is chaotic and it is crazy right now. And how are we handling that? And again, most of us aren't going to a drunken orgy. But the question is, has food become, has food become how we handle so we just, we're searching for comfort? So that third piece of cake just looks really good? And it makes us feel comfortable when we eat it? Has the glass of wine become a bottle? Are we seeking comfort on a smartphone or a laptop? And making sure whatever's done is done in the private browser? We're deleting our history, looking over our shoulder. See, the danger for most of us isn't when the crazy comes that we're going to say, I think now's a great time to try meth. That's not the danger for most of us. The danger for most of us is to say, when the crazy comes, I'm just going to be comfortable. And so it's a little bit more, and it's a little bit more, and it's a little bit more. And then it allows, it allows a pathway for overindulgence. It allows a pathway for us to find our comfort, to seek it in, in the overindulgence of food or to overindulge in what we drink. 
And for some who are further down that path, then, then this is the time that you're like, yeah, I'm going to try meth now because I'm trying to make the pain go away. And that's not meant to make fun of anybody at all. It's just meant to say that most people don't start there. Most people start in places that are much more innocent and much more benign. But the question is, how are we individually, each of us, coping with the crazy? And what areas of our lives that we think are very much under control could be veering out of control that we need to take a hard look at? Belshazzar is coping with the crazy by having a huge drunken orgy. I mean, it's, it's, it's the first rave. This is... This is this is what they're having. They're having a rave. And then verse 2 tells us, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might get drunk from them. Now Belshazzar gets drunk. He just gets drunk. And while he's drunk, he remembers. He remembers the temple instruments that had been used by the Israelites to worship God. And he remembers how those, when Israel had been destroyed, how those were brought and they were displayed proudly to, as a sign that they had conquered the Israelites. And now he takes them out of the museum. He takes them off of their display, which they had been on, and he introduces those instruments which were once used to worship God, and he introduces them into the drunken orgy that he's having. And verse 3 says, Then they brought in the golden vessels that he had that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You know what's fascinating? There's no one's stopping this. No one's stopping this. Now, Belshazzar's drunk. He's drunk. He's like, I got a great idea. Let's go get... Let's go get the instruments that were used in the temple in Israel and let's bring them into the party. And everybody's like, yeah. And they go and get them. And then bring them in. Here's, here's the next thing that we need to analyze our lives with. Is who's stopping you from destructive things? Who's stopping you from destructive things? Not that it's anybody else's responsibility to police your life, but who do you have that's in your life, that's invested in you, that loves you enough, that is willing because of their love for you, they are willing to make you mad because they're willing to tell you the things that you don't want to hear? Because they love you. Do you have that person in your life? And listen, it can't always be your spouse. That's a recipe for a lot of tension. I'm not saying your spouse should never function in that role, but it can't always be your spouse. You need to have people in your life who love you enough that when you're like, this is a really great idea, they're like, nope, no, it's not. 
It's a really stupid idea, and it's going to end really poorly. And I'm going to make you mad telling you that, but the fact of the matter is I love you enough. My love compels me to tell you you're headed down a really bad path, and you're on the course to do something really stupid. And if you don't have people like that in your life who love you enough to be willing to tell you the news you don't want to hear, you need to find those people, and you need to have them in your life. It doesn't mean it's always going to be fun but you need people in your life who love you enough to tell you the things that you don't want to hear. And Belshazzar, he doesn't have that. And we're about to see, it's going to, it's going to get really, really tragic. And immediately, verse 5 says, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Now, Belshazzar's wasted. He's not in the clearest mindset. And he looks out, and he sees a hand, and it starts writing on the wall. Just a hand. Devoid of a body, floating in the air, writing on a wall. And then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The whole tone, the whole tone of the evening changes in an instant. It is gone from the just the most fun that you could possibly have in that moment when you were just completely not worried about anything. You have no inhibition. You're doing whatever feels good. There is no regret. You're in that headspace. And we all know from choices that we've all made in our lives that we would come later to regret in our lives that that mindset never lasts. The promise of sin is that that will, that will be the mindset that always lasts. It feels good. But we all know from the regret that we have from doing things that we wish we hadn't in our lives that that mindset never lasts. But in that moment, they're feeling good. There's all the food that they could want. The, the alcohol is flowing to the point that it is widely being consumed. There is debauchery of every single kind. Whatever you wanted, you could have your desires fulfilled on display at this party. And then the hand shows up and it starts writing on the wall and the whole tone changes instantaneously. The whole tone changes and the king's color changes. The color is sucked out of him. He's just seen a hand that is floating and writing. His mind is racing. His thoughts are all over the place. He can't slow it down. He's, he's, having, he's having a panic attack. His limbs, they, they give way. He goes limp. And his knees, they knock together. The whole tone changes. Verse 7 says, Then the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed. And his lords were perplexed. King has no clue what's going on. 
He has no clue what's going on. And he promises all of the advisors that he had had in his kingdom, if you can help me figure this out, if you can tell me what's going on, I'll take care of you. I will elevate you. I will give you status. I will, I will give you wealth. I will take care of everything that you need. If you can tell me what's going on. He's, and, and when none of them can, he realizes this is the real deal. This isn't just something that, that I'm seeing. And he, he is freaking out. The color has changed. And not only that, but now there is no one who he could previously count on who can tell him what's happening. And now you introduce this idea of the uncertainty that not only does he not know what's going on, no one knows what's going on. It, pauses us to, to, it causes us to pause and ask another question. And that is this. Where do we go when times are uncertain? Where do we turn when it seems there's nowhere, less, nowhere else left for us to turn? just going to summarize the next few verses. But the queen comes back into the room. The queen comes back into the room and said to King Belshazzar, relax, relax. You don't need to worry about it. Your father or grandfather, again, we're, we're not really sure which because there isn't a good word for, for grandpa in Hebrew or Aramaic, and, and this part of Daniel was written in Aramaic, so we're not really sure whether or not King Nebuchadnezzar was, was the father or the, or the grandfather, but he made a name, he, made a, he, he, he had a man named Daniel in his kingdom who was incredibly wise. He was the chief magician. He was over all of the astrologers. He was over all of the soothsayers. He was over all of the psychics. He was smart. He was great at interpreting dreams. He was a problem solver. This Daniel was an amazing advisor. An amazing advisor to the great King Nebuchadnezzar. He was amazing. Let's go get Daniel. And let's have him help us out. In a world that increasingly rejects our conclusions about Jesus, in a world that increasingly rejects the hope and the love that we as people who follow Jesus are called to offer, let's make sure that we are resolved in our lives to still carry ourselves in such a way that even after people have rejected our message in times of uncertainty and in times of trouble, they still think, I remember that person. They may have rejected the truth of our message, but let's live in such a way that when there is nowhere else for them to turn, the first people they think of are people who follow Jesus because of the way that we carry ourselves. Then verse 13, we pick it back up where we read these words. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. 
Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel says, I don't want your stuff. I don't want it. I don't need it. That's not why I'm here. You're not going to buy me or bribe me with these things. I will serve you. I will do this for you, but you don't need to do this for me. I will give this answer to you but you don't have to do that for me. This is, this is fascinating to me. And it, it tells us a story of how God operates in our lives. Because here is Daniel, who has lived an extraordinary life. God has used him to accomplish extraordinary things. And at this point, he's an afterthought. At this point, though he had great influence with the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the last guy that's brought in. It's after all of the other advisors have had their turn, and they can't come up with the answer. Which which tells us a couple things. The first is this. We never fully know what God is up to and what He's doing in the waves that He weaves together the story of our lives. We never fully know all that God is up to and what He's doing when He is weaving together the story of our lives. We never fully know how God is using us in the lives of other people, and in the story of others. And sometimes in God's providence, years sometimes, sometimes days or weeks or months, sometimes decades, sometimes not ever at all. But sometimes we have the benefit of looking back and seeing ways that we didn't recognize at the time that God was doing some incredible things and He was up to some really cool things Sometimes we get the benefit of looking back and seeing with the benefit of hindsight how God was weaving all of that together, how God was taking my story and your story and somebody else's story and bringing all of that together. And it's really cool to see that, but sometimes we never get to see that. And here's Daniel who undoubtedly has to be thinking, my time has come and it is gone, and he is the afterthought at this point, but he is the only one who can provide the the answer when nobody else can. And that declares to us something else that's very important for us to always remember and never to forget. And that is very simply this, that if we're not dead, God's not done. If we're not dead, God's not done with us. And God uses Daniel, brings him off of the sidelines and launches him in to the forefront of this story. And then Daniel gives a history lesson. And I'm just going to summarize. He said, God gave your father, grandfather, whatever Nebuchadnezzar was, greatness. He gave him greatness. The whole world, the whole world revered 
and feared him. The whole world revered and feared the great Nebuchadnezzar. He would decide who would live. He would decide who would die. But in all that power, with all of that standing, he became incredibly arrogant. He became full of himself. And God hates pride. We see that story throughout Scripture, that God abhors pride. God hates all sin, but God really hates pride. And so he went and he humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and he took his glory away from him because God cannot stand the proud. In verse 21, we pick it up where we read these words, Daniel describing what had become of the great king who the whole world feared and revered, the great king Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel tells Belshazzar, you knew about what happened to the great Nebuchadnezzar. You knew what had happened, but you chose to ignore it. You chose not to to pause and to humble yourself before God. You chose to ignore it, and you chose to ignore the warning of God. And not only that, He charges Belshazzar with something else that's very prevalent in our society today as well. He says, not only are you full of yourself, not are you full of pride, not only are you arrogant, refusing to humble yourself, but you have worshipped everything that is created and not the Creator. And everywhere we look in our society, on full display, can we see this? He says, Belshazzar, instead of worshiping God the Creator, you have worshipped everything that is created. And the examples that he gave him were silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. He says, you have worshipped wealth. You have worshipped prestige. You have worshipped position. You have worshipped nature. You have worshipped all of these things, but none of these things are worthy of worship because all of these things are created things. They are not the Creator. And you've missed it entirely because you have been blinded to the Creator because of your worship 
of the created. And then from his presence, the hand was sent, verse 24 says. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many tekel in parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And Daniel declares the message to Belshazzar, the judgment from God is declared. I mean, this is where we get the saying, the handwriting's on the wall. We can all see it. It just hasn't happened yet. And that's exactly what's happening here. And then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is how the story ends. That the judgment that was declared was brought about that night. Now again, most of us are not kings. Most of us are not attending a drunken orgy tonight. So what are the takeaways for us? Well, the first is this. We live in a time of uncertainty. We live in a time of chaos. And the question is, where do we find our hope? Where do we find our peace? What are we turning to for our comfort? Have we, in, in all the uncertainty, allowed ourselves to become people who let our guard down? And in an appeal to just feel better, invited something unhealthy and destructive into our lives that will ultimately lead to our destruction. But in the moment, offers us an escape. The second question that each of us must encounter is who is in our lives? Who is in our lives who loves us enough to tell us the things we do not want to hear, but we need to hear? And who loves us enough that is willing to be there for us even when we don't want to hear it, but we need to hear it. Who is that person? And if you don't have that person in your life, you need to find that person who loves you and is willing to tell you the truth. We don't know how God weaves together every story. So have you lost hope 
that God's done with you or God doesn't have anything great in, in store for you. God doesn't really have any purpose for you anymore. And, and you're just kind of going through the motions. Do you, are you living life that way without any energy, without any excitement, without any anticipation that God is not through with you, that God still wants to accomplish great things in your life for his glory? We lost sight of that. Do the people in our lives know that even if they reject the truth, that when there is nowhere else for them to turn, because we are people who love and follow Jesus, that when there is nowhere else for them to turn, even though they've rejected the truth, do they know that they can still come to us? And we will lovingly walk beside them and God will give us another opportunity to point them to the hope of Jesus. Do people know that when there's nowhere else to turn, they can turn to us? And listen, that doesn't mean that you sign up to be an enabler. We've, we just talked about the fact that love compels us to say hard things to people. So this is not an invitation for us to become enablers and just continue to enable people to make destructive choices and decisions that only compound and make their lives worse. But it is a call for us to be available to people no matter what. And so we who have the hope of Jesus need to live our lives in such a way that we are there for people and people know We are there for them. And the last question I have for you is what's your hope in? What is your hope in? Is it insecurity? It is, in, is it in your possessions? Is it in your prestige? Is it in your politics? Is it in your career? Is it in your social stand? What? Where's your hope? And what's it found in? Because the story of Daniel 5 is in many ways the story we've seen on full display all year long. And that's what is seemingly in control. Gets out of control in just an instant. And that is why as people who follow Jesus, our hope must be found in our Creator. And we must worship our Creator. And not wealth, not prestige, not standing, not nature. Our Creator. And that is our ultimate path and the only path to experiencing peace. God, I pray 
pray that we would be people who find our hope in you. God, I pray for the person here who's struggling with addiction. I pray that they would combat that. They wouldn't give in. I pray for the person who's on the path to that struggle and they don't even realize it yet. It's in some very benign areas, it seems. And I just pray, God, that you'd help them take a hard look at their lives. That we wouldn't seek to find our fulfillment or our joy in food or alcohol, substances, sexuality. Pray for people that are hurting. Pray for the person feels in their heart, in their head, like you're done with them. The enemy comes and tries to steal their joy and just keeps whispering, your best days are behind you. There's nothing left. God's got no plan for you. Pray, God, that in a world that increasingly rejects the hope and love that you offer, you'd help us not be jaded. You'd help us not be defeated or act hopeless. But we would be resolved to love everyone. Even when they reject your message, that we could still be in their lives and that when there is nowhere else for them to turn and there's nowhere else for them to go, that, that God, they would turn to us and we would love them and once again point them to the hope that's found only in you through your son, Jesus. So God, use us as your people. Use us as your church. And work in people's lives. Change them for you, we ask. In your son, Jesus' name. Amen.